from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking about a new book that's come out called The Arsenal of Democracy. It delves into the role that Detroit and especially the Ford Motor Company played in converting wartime production from automotive production during the Second World War. And joining us on the show is the author of this book, A.J. Bayman. A.J., great having you on Terrific the Terrific to be here. Week. Thank you very much. Also joining me are two of my great colleagues, Mark Phelan from the Detroit Free Press and Henry Payne from the Detroit News, and great having the both of you here, too. Thanks, John. Thank you. So, A.J., i, I got to start out by asking, what led you to go into this book? And, and we should warn the audience, this is about the arsenal of democracy, but it, it, it slices this on many different layers. You get into all kinds of personality things between Henry Ford and his son, Edsel, and a whole lot more. I'm just curious, what led you to begin writing this book in the first place? Um, in 2009, I published a book called Go Like Hell, and that covers uh, a ri- motor racing rivalry between Henry Ford II, an amazing larger-than-life figure, and Enzo Ferrari of Italy, also amazing larger-than-life figure. But I, I did all this research on Ford Motor Company during World War II, and I learned so many things. I realized the story was so fascinating. And when I realized that there's this very dark sort of um, in, uh, uh, inner conflict in the Ford family uh, and in the company during World War II, in which there's a climactic battle between good and evil. And that battle happened at the exact same time leading up to the climactic battle of World War II. And I realized there's a way to tell both of these stories at, at the same time and have them intersect right at this critical moment. So, Well, and looking at it now, we've all heard the, the phrase arsenal of democracy. We know how much Detroit provided. And I always assumed that it was a relatively straightforward process that you know, FDR said, we need this, this is what you're doing. And the automakers all said, yes, sir. But it was much more of a negotiation, and it was difficult to get Henry Ford in particular to, to go along with this, right? Absolutely. Writers of narrative love uh, uh, sort of the classic story model, which is boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. And that's sort of what happened in Detroit in a, in a different way. Let me elaborate. Everybody got on board after World War II. FDR came up with the idea, I mean, after Pearl Harbor, FDR came up the, with the idea with the speech called the Arsenal of Democracy. This was going to be a war of mass production. Everybody knew that Detroit had to play the starring role, and everybody got on board. After that, everything went fantastically wrong. We were, it's amazing to me in my research when I realized even six months after Pearl Harbor, you read the back and forth between Churchill and FDR, to what degree we were underdogs and we were losing. Well, and the other thing that, that, that that's fa- the fascinating to me, I mean, I, and again, everything sort of gets gets uh, uh, telescoped with history. But but you but you know, any student of that time knows that Roosevelt and business did not get along. I mean, the the the, the animosity between Roosevelt and businessmen was similar to the animosity you get today between the White House, between the Obama administration and business. So, guys like Henry Ford, did, they did not like the National Industrial Recovery Act. They did not trust Roosevelt. Now here comes Roosevelt all of a sudden saying, we want you to contribute, we, we want you to help me. So, you know, you have this, this already this clash of business and government, and now they're supposed to work together. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting time. I agree with you. And if there was one business leader who did not like FDR, it was Henry Ford. Yeah. They hated each other. Yeah. But, A.G., as you bring out in your book, Edsel Ford, Henry's son, 
was all behind what FDR wanted to do, at least in terms of converting to wartime production. So not only do you have this clash between Henry Ford and the president, you've got, and you brought this out beautifully, a real clash between Henry Ford and his son. Well, and Edsel comes off really as a tragic hero, I think, in much of the book. I think so, too. You mentioned the word Edsel today, and everybody says the same thing, which is, you, you know, what does Edsel mean to you? You say... A failed car. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal review of this book really picked up on, if it was one thing that they picked up on, was the degree to which Edsel is this misunderstood character. And nobody knows who he is. He, you know, a lot of people live in, even in Detroit. But at the time, Edsel Ford, he was Henry Ford's only child, or only legitimate child. There's rumors around that, but we're not going to go into that now. Um, and that's another book. That's, an <laughs> that's the next book. Even a more complicated one. <laughs> but um, Edsel Ford was the only child of, of who was in the first half of the 20th century the richest, most famous man in the world. He was the child that anybody would want to be. Um, people, couples were naming their, their son Edsel Ford all over the country. There was an Edsel Ford born in Michigan, in Indiana, in Louisiana. You can type it into, you see all these census records. And, um, but really, Edsel's life, he was a very tragic figure. Um, and uh, his father, he and his father, they loved each other desperately, and they just couldn't put it together. And so at the heart of this book is really a father-son story, which really comes to the fore, really climaxes during the war. And part of the, the, the reason for that is that Edsel was scarred by the fact that in the First World War, his father pulled strings to keep him out of the service, and there were editorials calling him the son of privilege while you know, others suffered in the trenches, and he, he felt terrible about that, and, and I mean, that played into his eagerness to help with the Second World War, didn't it? Absolutely. I think Edsel Ford was not allowed, he was forbidden from his by his father to, to serve in World War I, and he was brutally maligned at a very tender age in the newspapers all over the world. And um, I think that at that point, Edsel Ford began to realize that it wasn't going to be so easy to be Edsel Ford. And things just got darker than that with, with the Great Depression. And um, he was dying of cancer when the, when the war began. And I think this effort to help build this arsenal of democracy in the bomber force was really his last chance at, at honor. Yeah, you know, I knew that there had been a lot of tension between the father and the son. That's well known. But you pulled out more detail than I've seen anybody do. And, you know, really captured uh, how complex a man Henry Ford was. And I, I say complex because on one hand, he did very admirable things. On the other hand, he was a despicable father, too. A lot of people, uh, a lot of historians, a lot of people who knew Henry would really describe him as two personalities. Inside this man, there was really a fight between good and evil. And you could see both of these sides of him coming out. Uh, I interviewed people. I found some, some, some people who remembered meeting him. Uh, and they would describe him as this wonderful person because children brought out the bright side of Henry Ford. Uh, but in business dealings and a lot of other dealings, as we know, he can be an extremely difficult man. But, you know, and again, I mean, as, as John says, you, you, you really pull out a lot of research. I mean, but behind this historical uh, uh, book is, is this personality dynamic, not just between the, the Fords, but also Sorensen and Bennett and all these characters that populate this, this little universe that everybody in the world admires. I mean, Henry Ford is, is one of the best-known figures in the world. But the, the, the other thing that really strikes me about these two people, and, and you get that across industrial generations, is the difference between the founder and the second generation. The founder, Henry Ford, is, is an intense, not terribly well-educated businessman. His, his son, by virtue of his father's success, is a much more worldly man. And, 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 I, and I think that 
that, that's part of the conflict between these two men. And one reason that Edsel has a larger worldview with Roosevelt. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people use the phrase in my research on Henry Ford II, for example, who uh, during, right before D-Day has to uh, quit the Navy um, and come back to Dearborn to try to rescue this company from the dark forces. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people uh, in describing, they say, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. The idea that Henry Ford had found this mm -hmm. company and his son was going to run it. Um, and then by the time you get to the third generation, it was all just going to disappear and fall apart. Of course, we know now that that wasn't the case. But um, what strikes me about all of these people, even Etzel, who's very press shy, they're all larger than life characters. Mm -hmm. well, and a thread that sort of runs through it all, I, I, as Henry was saying, was Charles Sorensen, who helped create the modern mass production facility and was there when Edsel kind of shocked the, the military and said, oh, we're not going to make parts for you, we're going to build planes. I mean, how, how, what, how valuable was Sorensen's material? Sorensen, uh, another larger-than-life character, extremely important in the book, extremely important in the, in, in the war effort. There were really, in the first half of the 20th, 20th century, uh, two guys who I think stood out maybe three, but really two, as production geniuses. Sorensen was one of them. The other was William Knudsen. They were both curiously Danish um, by birth. And um, both of them were, were loved and hated because I don't think it was easy to be, you know, that sort of production genius. But Sorensen uh, was a fascinating character. And I used a lot of his original diaries to create this book, because he was at sort of the nexus. He was the character who was describing what was going on in everybody else's life at the time. And one of the things that I found fascinating is that uh, Charles Lindbergh shows up uh, repeatedly. And I was aware of his fall from grace and his disgrace you know, in the pre-war you know, period. I didn't realize that he had a second act in which he was vital to getting the planes off the ground, and, and he went on to do more. Yeah, he's, he's sort of reborn in, uh, in, in his Ford time, isn't he? That's exactly, I like the use of that word, absolutely. Right before Pearl Harbor, there were the two, the two biggest voices, uh, anti-FDR, both, well, anti-FDR and, and both against uh, America's, you know, joining the war were um, Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, and they joined together. They were both voices for this group called America, America First, and they were out there campaigning, saying we, we must not be in, in this war. Lindbergh testified before Congress, and I have a picture in the book of him doing so, where he says, really, the reason why we should not be in this war is because we can't win. I found that fascinating, because Hitler's Air Force was so impressive. He had seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, after Pearl Harbor, they both joined in hands to build the bomber force at Willow Run. So, so Lindbergh ser served um, probably more than half the war years right at Willow Run building airplanes. And that I never knew before, that he was a test pilot yeah. at the plant. I, you know, I had no idea. And, and as you point out in your book, he wasn't necessarily paid great money. He was paid just like any of the other pilots. I think his salary was $666.66. And they had come up with that figure because he um, had been kicked out. Well, he resigned from the Air Corps because he was so anti-FDR. And after Pearl Harbor, Lindbergh wanted to join back in the military. He really wanted to serve his country. Yeah. And he was forbidden. So when he uh, was hired by Ford, Ford was flooded with letters saying, um, you know, don't trust this guy, he's a Nazi, he's this, he's that. Um, but he took a salary of 666.66 because that's what would have been his salary if he was working with the Air Corps, flying for the Air Corps at the time. Yeah. And then by the end of the war, he was called back to Air Corps service. Uh, he was he? indeed. Yeah. He was actually allowed to fly with the Air Corps, but he was not 
technically in the military. So he had to go and buy his own uniform, and he could wear a military uniform with no insignia on it, and he flew it in, 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 uh, you know, in the Eastern Theater. I, I had heard that the Army Air Force really wanted him because he was so efficient at flying, he could extend the range of the bombers, or if not extend the range, leave them enough of a cushion to be sure that they could get back to their bases. But this guy, I mean, he, he was one of the best pilots of his day. Well, if you think about it, imagine this. We were desperate for aviation engineers. We were desperate for, for classy, trained pilots. We didn't have an Air Force. And Lindbergh's animosity toward the FDR administration was so great that they didn't let him fly. Can you imagine? So what he did at Willow Run, he tested planes. And what he said about the early built, the Ford-built B-24s was very, was very odd. He didn't like them, did he? He did not like them. <laughs> and he was <laughs> flying every one of them when it came off the assembly line. I wouldn't say every one of them, but, but, but quite a few. I and mean, he was also doing other kinds of experiments there. I was fascinated by Lindbergh. He was doing, uh, they built an um, altitude chamber. Um, the, bit, the best one that had ever been built right at Willow Run to see they wanted to do all these experiments because they knew that Hitler was, was experimenting with um, high altitude flying because if somebody's flying an airplane 40,000 feet in the sky, they can drop bombs, you know, with no problem with, with anti-aircraft uh, anti fire. So Lindbergh was doing um, experiments at Willow Run to see how high the human body could go without, you know, without death. And he almost died in a plane testing some altitude things as well uh, out of uh, Willow Run, didn't Absolutely, he? Absolutely, yes. He, he, um, he lost uh, consciousness in a single-engine fighter plane above Willow Run by himself and uh, nearly died. And when he landed, it, it, I found this in his diaries. He, he said, when you come back from you know, a near-death moment, your senses are so alive. And he began to describe Willow Run and what it looked like, you know, these robot bombers that were, you know, going to, kill children and, and women and, you know, abroad. And his, his, his remembrances are extraordinary. AJ, one of the things that's so interesting is, uh, as you alluded to, you know, the mythology in the United States is, you know, Pearl Harbor happened, FDR said, we've got to build all these things. And it's as if somebody flicked a switch and all this war material started to come out. What, what you point out in the book is this plant, especially as well as much of the other conversion effort, was a real struggle. Mm -hmm. Two things I can say to that. One is Willow Run really, as you know, the idea that they were going to build the largest airplane factory in the world, the largest factory of any kind under one roof, and they were going to build it that quickly to try to turn the biggest, fastest, most destructive bomber in our arsenal into the most mass-produced military aircraft of all time. It was an extraordinary story, and it really captured the imagination of people everywhere. So when things started to go very wrong, it really, because it was such an ambitious project, it really became a petri dish for all the problems of, you know, on the home front with, with trying to build the arsenal of democracy. And of course, all the reporters were there to document it. So um, the stories are, they're incredible. And, and Lindbergh, if I recall correctly, he, he said that the first plane that he flew was virtually unflyable. And it went on and they finally delivered on the promise Edsel had made, we will build a bomber every hour in the very last days of Edsel's life, I think. Was that the case? Yes. I don't think they ever achieved it, did they? I think not you're right. Well, they, they did achieve it, but not before Edsel had oh. passed away. Mm -hmm. So I think when, when Edsel was dying, he didn't live to know whether or not this extraordinary experiment was going to be successful. Can you imagine? But can, can you talk about that a little more, uh, AJ, though? I mean, we live in this auto industry in this town in which, which these extraordinary products, cars, come, come out in a four-year production cycle. 
this is, this is a plant that needed to be built and, and start producing a bomber a day within what bomber period? An hour. A bomber an hour, sorry. A bomber an hour in like two years, right? What was the, I mean, the time frame is extraordinary, the expectations for this plant. The original outline, the original timeline for what they were going to try to do, it was something like 14 months to the time that they started clearing the field <laughs> to the time that they were going to start making bombers. Yeah. And of course, it didn't work like that. Yeah. Um, but you, could, you couldn't do a car like that today. I mean, and no, and also 1941, they want, they want to, you want to produce a, a B-24, a four-engine bomber, in 14 months. Also keep in mind, the, the uh, aviation, you know, nobody had ever done that. No airplane in America had ever been mass-produced. Yeah. Certainly not the biggest, fastest a bomber that, when it was fully loaded, would weigh close to 60,000 pounds. There's a lot of parts, there's a lot of pieces. They actually, just the, the, the descriptions of how many rivets were used in each plane, the different kinds of rivets, the metallurgy, how they, they had to build them. You know, these things didn't just exist. If you wanted a rivet, you had to make it. Right. The other thing I was fascinated by was just the people involved in making it and how there was no contingencies for the many thousands of employees that had to go there. Go, go through that a little bit because I think most people are unaware of Sure, yeah, yeah, uh, it's very complicated to build a bomber, but just the logistics of getting enough employees there to build them was a huge issue. It was. When this war began, the guys who, who created Willow Run, they thought that they would be able to draw labor from the neighboring communities and from Detroit, which was 23, 27 miles away. And after Pearl Harbor, they had this rationing issue. So you couldn't drive to the, you didn't have tires, you didn't have gasoline, you didn't have beer or coffee either, and that was a problem. But um, So they couldn't staff the place. Originally, there was going to be 100,000 people working there. At its peak, it was closer to uh, just under 44,000. But that's 44,000 people who had to go there. So originally, they had people who wanted to work there, and of course, this is at the end of the Great Depression, people traveled from all over because they just wanted to get work. They had to live next to the factory, but there was no housing, there was no water, there were no toilets, there was no school, no doctors. So it was really an incredible social experiment. The, the um, uh, you know, I think I think there, there's a misnomer that businessmen like war, that there's business in war. But actually, my experience is businessmen hate war because it because it disrupts markets. You know, now now all of a sudden they they, they can't. You know, in the case of World War II, uh, Europe now is walled off as as a market. Uh, one of the fascinating subplots of your book is that, is that Ford had expanded so fast internationally that it had factories in Germany producing trucks for the Nazis at the same time you had Willow Run producing bombers that were going to go over to destroy those factories, those Ford. So essentially you had Ford producing bombers to go bomb Ford truck plants. Isn't that right? Uh, I, I speak slowly when I speak on this topic because it's such a complicated issue yeah. and it's incredibly controversial to think. But yes, it, uh, the Detroit Motor Companies, not just Ford, did play a role in, in building the arsenal you know, in Nazi-occupied territory. One of the things I found in my research, um, the Treasury investigation did it, uh, you know, basically raided Ford's office in 1940, the end of 1942 and put together this document for President Roosevelt. And I was actually, I have the warrant that the, the investigators show up when he showed up at their offices and described the look on Hetzel Ford's <laughs> face when they said, I'm gonna go through your drawers and yeah. pull out all these documents. And the report is fascinating. And really what it shows is uh, the F Ford executives were given permission 
to communicate with the guys running their plants in Nazi-occupied territory just to find out what was happening. These were family friends, some of these people. They wanted to know that they were safe. Um, and uh, these, these executives in Nazi-occupied territory would give reports of what was happening there, and they are fascinating. Now, uh, I leave in the book, uh, you know, people will come to their own conclusions. Certainly the book is not an indictment, far from it. It's about patriotism, but I tried to explain what really happened. But what's your sense of it? Because there are people out there right now today saying that Ford and General Motors helped the Nazi war machine. My guess is that if you were in Germany or France and the Nazis rolled in, you had a choice, do what they say or get shot. And I'm just trying to figure out what's your sense of what really this is all about. Let me start by saying this. It's a pretty sexy story, isn't it? We're all journalists here. It's pretty sexy to be able to say that these big Detroit companies were building you know, weapons for the Nazis and making money doing it. It's not true. I mean, they were building those weapons there. They were building trucks and, and airplane parts. But um, my research shows very clearly that they were given no choice. And once the war started, those factories were taken away from them. So again, uh, incredibly complex issue. Uh, really plays into, you know, there is no wrong or right, and there is no good and evil. It's always something in between. But uh, guys like Etzel Ford, uh, I think that they acted with integrity. Well, and there was a fascinating scene in the book where one of, I think, Etzel's lieutenants was in Cologne, where Ford had a huge plant and still has a huge plant uh, today. And he saw a new building next to the plant where Ford was building the trucks that he knew about, and he said, what's that building? What do we do there? And he was told by the German plant manager, I can't let you in there. You're an American. So, I, I mean, it, it sounded like it was a very, a, a real tightrope that everybody was walking. I think you're right. The gentleman you're talking about, his name was Talberg, and he was the chief engineer, pretty much the only American working at the Cologne plant at the time. He was the chief engineer. And uh, through his oral histories, it's just a great window into how the Nazis really began to take that factory away. They began to be very secretive. The American was only allowed into certain places. He came to America for, to visit his family. He went back. There was a new plant built, and he wasn't allowed in there. And they were taking machinery out of the Ford plant, put it in that other factory over there. And uh, you know, after the war, it became clear. After the war began, it became quite clear what was happening. One of the questions that keeps coming up is Henry Ford himself. I mean, was he profoundly anti-war? Was he a Nazi sympathizer? What, do you have a take on it? I do. Again, I have to be so careful when I speak about this and so clear. Before the war started, Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, they, they were anti-Semites. I think it's true. Um, I, th I think it's more than I think. They were definitely anti-Semitic. They were anti-Semitic. Virulent, virulently anti-Semitic. I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm not making excuses for these people. But I also think it's extremely important to contextualize what was going on. Anti-Semitism was rampant at the time. Mm -hmm. It was in the books that children read at school. So for Henry Ford to be an anti-Semite you know, in the 1920s, it was not... You know, but it, it's different when you buy a newspaper and you start right. writing editorials about this. Absolutely. So uh, Henry, but this is the point that I'm making. Both Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh were given uh, awards by, by, by Hitler, this cross. And Henry Ford was given this award and there was, you know, when it was given to him, somebody took a picture and they're pinning this, you know, thing on his, on his lapel here. And it was extremely controversial. 
And, um, you know, he came out and said, I don't sympathize with the Nazis, but he didn't give the medal back. And that was even more controversial. Mm -hmm. And his reasoning, he wouldn't speak to. But it was quite clear um, the reason why is because the Nazis had so much power. And during, this is an important point, during the Great Depression, all these companies were suffering because of what Hitler was doing in Germany. The, it was the only place where was, there was a thriving economy. They were making money. They were making money. And American companies who had factories over there were forbidden for taking any money out. And they were very threatened that, that those investments were just going to disappear because Hitler could have just kicked them out and all of that would have been gone. And that was the situation during the Great, Great Depression. These executives could not afford to happen. And they didn't have a crystal ball. They didn't understand that there was going to be war and genocide. And I was interested in the book to see that, that Henry Ford was perhaps equally adamantly opposed to American intervention in the First World War as well. You know, I, I didn't realize that. He was against war. It was almost a religious thing for him. He, uh, he went on a peace crusade during World War I. They hired a ship and they went across uh, to Europe and tried to stop the war. Literally, Henry Ford tried to stop the war with this peace ship and it was a disaster. I mean, hmm. but... Um, yeah, he's trying to expand his, his, his product. But Adrian, I, 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 do, I think you do a, you do a wonderful uh, again, this, uh, this, this difference between a Henry Ford, a self-made man, a man of his time, as you say, really driven by business. I mean, just this intensely driven man. And, and then a son who, as a result of that, is a much more educated man. I, I, think, I think most, um, uh, you know, most, most racism, most, most uh, ethnic hatred is ignorance. And, and Henry Ford, it's, what strikes me as interesting about him, and you, and you really write about this in good detail. I mean, at the same time, this guy is, is putting out a newspaper. He's also hiring a Jew, Albert Kahn, to build his factory. Exactly. Uh, at, the, at the point when um, that organization becomes... Uh, a, 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 um, becomes a blemish on him, the one that, that he was involved with with Lindbergh, the... America First, or... He, he leaves it, right? Right. He yeah. leaves it. So, I mean, it, what always strikes me is that what drives him is his business instinct. At, you know, at the point where it becomes a problem for his business, he, he you know, anti-Semitism isn't there anymore. Yeah, and Ed's with that, we're going to, to have to wrap this up, but uh, Henry makes a great point. I highly recommend reading the book. As you can tell, where there's multiple levels to the story of the arsenal of democracy. A.G. Bain, thanks so much for coming. I thank all of you for joining this discussion. It's a great thrill. Yeah, thank really you. Really good. Thanks, A.G. Mark Phelan, Henry Payne, thank you both. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. <laughs>